and showing me bite marks from their children by rats. And I went over the country and said, can we find a device to deal with the rat infestation? And we were able to put it in place as a pilot project and killed 107 rats. And then we wanted to put the pilot project into nitrogen development. It was folks coming over and say, why are you killing rats? You know, so those things that are important to everyday residents. We have a welcome sign to New York, but how about being welcome to the people who were there? And I think my comments of, of you know, the evolution of the community is so important. And I will continue to say that. Now, sorry, just as a follow-up. Yes. Mothers were saying, why are you killing the rats? Because killing the rats would actually invite newcomers into their neighborhood? No, they was, they were, what I'm saying is how you hijack the things that are important to the residents. That was a top issue to those residents. Those who are not dealing with the issues of rat infestation that are living in NYCHA, they were hijacking the conversation that these everyday people who are there, they were saying these are important. So I'm showing how it's not only losing your apartment, it's losing those issues that you're saying are important. Maybe you may not be Twitter savvy or how to use social media or how to organize, but your issues are important just as those who are very savvy and getting their issues out on the forefront. So. When you uh, brought up gentrification in 2018, you yes. said the term was being used to demonize the evolution of a community. Mm-hmm. And then I'm reading your open letter to the newest New Yorkers, and you're talking about government agencies being weaponized to speed up the process of gentrification instead of uh, combating it. I'm trying to understand the, the consistency in that. And I'm also really interested, you, you sort of refer to the damage it, do, it does there about noise complaints, for instance, rising pretty rapidly in gentrifying areas. And you, you point to a, uh, a restaurant owner, you know, who might have to shut down. If there, there's sort of specific examples of that damage that you can, you can point to. Yes, let me, there's a couple of examples of it. And the uh, demonizing, using the tools of government. Uh, one of the best examples, there's several examples, but one of the best examples is what happened to uh, Fernando Mateo. Six million dollars he invested into La Marina. Just about every top elected official that experienced the beauty of that place, large African-American Caribbean population, that whole stretch of property. If you go up there now uh, and you look at what happened to those local uh, Dominican businessmen who opened restaurants, establishments there, they cleaned up the area. The area, when I was a police in the police department, that area was a drug um, zone. People used to OD, many drug problems. They cleaned up the area. New people moved into the area. They, got, they didn't want the traffic. They didn't want the people going into the area. So they got the police department to put barriers and roadblocks 10 blocks away from the restaurant so people could no longer drive down to the water edge. And they used the police uh, to uh, stop them from being able to use the place. They used the state liquor authority to go in. Hit over 70-something summonses, 90% of them. Um, were found nothing wrong, had 300 employees. They closed down the spot. He lost his 300 employees, lost their jobs. He lost his $6 million investment. Then they gave it to a white person to run uh, the facility to change the dynamic of those who attended. Right in Brooklyn, on Flatbush and 6th Avenue, an establishment with black professionals, just about every black elected official and white elected officials used the place to host events. It was called Woodlands. They used to have a line out front, very orderly, no disruption. Then there was a lot of criticism about the establishment. They used the state liquor authority. I had a meeting with the community residents, with the police, 
and the state liquor authority and the Department of Environmental Protection. And I said, do we have any crimes coming from this place? Are they over the noise complaints? Are, is there an issue with this place? All the agencies that stated no still collaborated in having the place closed down. The number of Caribbean establishments in Flatbush Avenue who have been in place for years are now saying that they're having constant raids by the police, constant raids by the fire department, constant raids by the Department of Building, being hit with summonses, uh, told they get noise, noise complaints for 311. All of these long-established businesses and economic drivers employing low-skilled young men and women in these communities are now being hit and they're being closed because new arrivals no longer want to be a part of, of the communities. The Western Day Parade has been there for years. Now there's complaints in my office. We don't believe the parade should be on Eastern Parkway anymore. My Jewish uh, constituents that dance in the street during the holiday season. Why do they have to dance in the street during the holiday season? You don't come in a community and displace the culture of the community. You come in and become a part of the community. So as Brooklyn Borough President, and are we correct in saying that you would like to be the 110th mayor of New York City <laughs> at some point in time? So then how do you circle that square, right? I mean, we know that we're going to have an influx of new folks coming in. We know that gentrification is real on the residential and commercial levels. We know that it's not always a white face. I mean, mm. I, I'm being real. I'm a gentrifier yeah. to my mm. new Brooklyn neighborhood. We both are. Um, <laughs> so how do you then negotiate with real estate agents and corporations to not only invest in the borough, but also make sure that the individuals that are coming respect the history and the individuals who are there? I think that's a powerful question. That's an excellent question because it's not, and I really want to say, it's not just apartments. It's about a conversation. And what we're doing, like similar to what we're doing prior to the Dr. King speech, and I want to talk on that for a moment, we put in place after the increase in hate crimes, the increase in how people are treated, both Jewish and non-Jewish, we're doing something called uh, breaking bread, building bonds. A hundred dinners all over the city, 10 people at each dinner. Each individual at the table is coming from a different cultural, ethnic, religious, and lifestyle to compel people to talk to each other, interact with each other. It is unbelievable to me as I move around the borough in the city how much people don't even engage in each other, don't even respect the norms of different environments. And we want to foster that conversation because we have to. Something simple as good morning or, or you know, why am I angry that your dog is crapping on my yard and you refuse to pick it up? Or, you know, how we have a school that's 85 percent of one group, and yet you have classrooms inside that school that are just made of uh, one particular group. And that is not how we can continue to move forward. So there's a combination of having real affordable housing. In my borough president's office, we put up over $50 million into housing because we know how important it is. Sustaining NYCHA, many of these communities, if you look have NYCHA at the heart of them. And we have to protect NYCHA and give it the quality that it deserves. And then to make sure landlords are not illegally evicting um, our tenants. We're not doing a good job on that. We need to have start arresting and put landlords in perp walks to understand you're not going to do illegal eviction, which is a crime, uh, arson to burn people out, which is a crime, criminal mischief, damaging property, have people removed, which is a crime. We need to be more aggressive. I spoke with 
all of my district attorneys and communicated with them. We have to start using the criminal statutes that are on the books now to let landlords know that it's not going to be the course of doing business when you displace people, when you illegally raise their rent, when you take these affordable housing off the road. We have to be more aggressive about it to stabilize the hemorrhaging of apartments. I just want to ask you one more thing about uh, Fernando Mateo before we get to policing and mm-hmm. uh, perp walks and mm-hmm. some questions around that. So he had he had um, a beef with the NYPD going back to Bloomberg and Kelly about mm-hmm. over enforcement. Mm-hmm. Um, I also know that that in the account, at least of the New York Post, that he had been bundling money for de Blasio in the course of trying to get an associate put on and in the course of, of dealing with some of those issues with yes. how his restaurant was being policed. Is that like a right and appropriate way for a constituent to deal with the set of problems or is that problematic? Like, like how, how should I understand that? And am I right that you're saying that the complaints about La Marina – we're coming from outside of the uh, like the community that, that's long been there uptown. Um, right, the long the long term residents who were there patronized the place. Uh, it was a beautiful establishment. Like I stated, he he invested six million. And this is an example of what happens throughout the entire city where you see communities change that that are changing. La Marina was a was a well established place with three hundred employees. New people moved into Washington Heights and decided that they don't like the La Marina anymore. They used their skills to have police respond, state liquor authority respond, and other city agencies to go in, give him a large number of summonses, uh, have the police use their resources to block the roads that led to La Marina, the restaurant. Think about that for a moment. We had police officers that were having roadblocks, not allowing cars to drive down to his establishment. That is not how we should be using police services. I'm, I'm an ex-police officer. That is unacceptable to me. And to use the police to break a business, a leg- legitimate business. If he was committing a crime, let's close it down. But a legitimate business, you stop patrons from going to that business. That is not what we should be using police services for. And when I look at that pattern and I sit down with these various restaurants and businesses throughout the city, I'm seeing the same pattern. Using police, using state liquor authority because the number of complaints that are being received. So you're using city agencies to go after legitimate businesses. Now, when you talk about his bundling of money for Bill de Blasio, he, he was not convicted of a crime. Any, anyone can make an accusation of someone. And we, I'm, I'm always careful about when someone, when someone makes an accusation because you can't take it back. He didn't commit a crime. He, he, he said that he was bundling, though. So, so right. this wasn't treated criminally. Like, you know, the, the rules on that are pretty clear. Like, so, so really, it's, it, I think it's just a question here of whether or not you think that's good and appropriate, not whether or not he was convicted of a crime. Okay. That well, now, what's good and appropriate for people to for, bundle? For a business, business owner, you know, to, to, to bundle that way while they're trying to shift how, you know, the NYPD and others are, are dealing with their establishment. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not seeing the connection because if a legitimate business owner makes the determination that he wants to bundle, which is legal, for a particular candidate, 
um, that uh, business owner should have the right to do so. That is within the campaign finance rules. You have to report your bundling. You have to follow the procedures. Uh, individuals have bundled for me, um, and they followed all the rules that is attached to bundling. Now, now I want to go back to the Dr. King uh, speech because it was a speech, and that speech uh, you can hear the whole thing online, by the way, and I encourage listeners to do so so that they can get the context that, that you know, these couple of lines were uh, came from. Exactly. And, and built into that speech, I laid out how I got to where I was, what is happening in this city, um, that a large body of people are being left behind and is only going to get extremely more complicated when we start looking at the impact of artificial intelligence, which is a show you could probably do on its own. You know, it's no secret that Oxford University is stating 47% of the jobs that we are training our babies for now won't be around in 20 years. This is not Eric's study. This is what Oxford University is saying. Yet we have bodies of people in this city that are being left behind in the issues that are important to them that are being ignored, such as black women are more likely to die from maternal morbidity 12 times the rate as white women. And we don't see a crisis going on. My speech was around the ignorance of the crises and crises don't become acknowledged until it's not in the communities of color or economically challenging communities. That was what my speech was about. And people say, well, you should not be making that speech on Dr. King days. Like hell, I shouldn't. That's when it was supposed to be made. People want to rewrite history. King was one of the most hated men in America. And go back and Google me. Every paper in this city was attacking me when I was talking about stop and frisk. They wrote editorials about me. They wrote columns about me. I was called racist. I was demonized when I was in the police department talking about that what we were doing to black and brown boys in the city was wrong. A million black and brown boys being stopped. I was demonizing the state Senate when I was talking about bail reform, that we should not be handcuffing women when they're pregnant and they're in, in, in the hospital. I was demonized when I was a sergeant. And I wrote protests in fr at Rockefeller Plaza with Randy Credico to say that we need to stop the Rockefeller drug laws. And then I went to Albany and I was one of the co-founders of the bill. So there's a history of people saying we don't like Eric Adams. Eric Adams is a racist. We don't we hate Eric Adams. That's fine. <laughs> you know, so uh, this is a great launch point, because I if my memory serves me correctly, if let's just say you're successful as the 110th mayor of New York City. In recent memory, you would be the first police officer who's mayor of New York City? Of, of my knowledge, um, I would be. And uh, yes, you, you're right. Now that I think about it. Okay. So <laughs> not, you, not only police officer, which is very interesting that you stated, I probably would be the first blue-collar employee. All the traditional men who have been the mayors of this city um, if you look under my fingernail, you see the dirt and grind of climbing up that mountain one hand at a time. I didn't come from a political machine. Um, I, I, I didn't come from a, uh, you know, movement towards. No, it, it's been a hustle. It's been a hustle, a hustle that included uh, being arrested at 15, being beat by cops so bad that they, my brother and I urinated blood for weeks. Um, it, it came from being told by the leaders of the National Black United Front, we want you to go into the police department and become a police officer. I didn't want to do that. I was still experiencing PTSD. But I went in, and from day one, 
I fought the racism of, of the police department. So it came from, you know, trying to fire me as a captain. When I, when I, I was promoted three times in the police department, when I became a captain, they wanted to fire me, uh, Commissioner Kelly, and I had a department trial. And when I finished that trial, the judge at that trial said, I wish you can be my state senator. So when you look at the legacy, the arc of my life, you'll see that it has been the same way. <laughs> So uh, so I, I think a lot of New Yorkers would respect that. I want to bring up something. I know some people don't like old business, but <laughs> if we're going to be, you know, running for mayor, I say let's bring it all up. Yes. So here's where I bristle. Yes. Because we know a lot of not just black communities, but a lot of communities feel a certain kind of way about police officers. Yes. NYPD in particular. Yes. Mm-hmm. MTA cops now in particular because <laughs> right. they seem to, you know, like to wield a baton and yes. a gun, et cetera. But this is what made me have a lot of pause. Okay. After the tragic Pittsburgh synagogue massacre. Yes. You said, this is in the Times, October 28th, 2018, mm-hmm. Brooklyn official says he will carry a gun whenever he enters a house of worship. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted you to pick apart that, let us know if that's what Love you it. still believe. Mm-hmm. But this was a conversation also at the time where they were saying, we got to arm teachers, we got to arm pastors. Right. I can barely work PowerPoint. I don't need to be carrying a right. gun. I'm not, you know, you obviously have a lot more training in handling these types of weapons. Right. But do we want to be a city where you go at, to FCBC or Abyssinian mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever large or small synagogue or mosque or temple and we're all packing heat when we should just be meditating and reflecting. First of all, this is such a good conversation because I'm able to unpack. Welcome to the podcast. I'm I'm able to unpack who I am. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And first of all, this is what I said because people like to take what Eric has stated. I said to my pastors, my rabbis, my uh, imams, in your bodies, there are law enforcement officers who attend your services, those law enforcement officers should connect with the overall part of your service. Have them sit at a certain place so they can observe the entire uh, event that's taking place, communicate with you, have the necessary signals. They're trained on how to respond to emergencies. My call is never for any and everybody. I'm not in support of teacher ca- teachers carrying guns. I'm not in support of, of people in the supermarket carrying guns. I'm talking about trained people inside. If you attend a house of worship of any kind and you are a trained law enforcement officer, FBI agent, NYPD, DNA, DEA agent, who we have gone through months of training on how to respond to emergencies. Those individuals should be part of your security apparatus. Why is that proven correctly? Look at the last shooting that happened inside the church. That last shooting, that person was not able to kill more people because you had a trained officer in there. Now, it's easy for us to state, I don't want anyone inside my house of worship with a gun. But let me tell you, if you start sending church and you start hearing the sound of an AK-47 taking piercing the bodies of people, ripping their bodies apart, and they're coming down the aisle, and you with your family members, your children, and you believe that person next to you is a trained police officer, he has a gun. Not only are you going to pray for the safety of your children, you're going to pray, pray that he has that gun. That's the real reality. People have figured out that if you hate Jews, go to synagogues. If you hate Christians, 
go to a, a, a church. If you hate Muslim, go to a mosque. People who go to pray should not be preyed upon. And I stand by that every day. When I go to church, I'm not walking around with my gun at my side, but I do have my firearm there. So if someone comes in there and wants to cause harm to innocent people, I'm going to defend them. The law gives me the right to carry a gun 24 hours, seven days a week. And there are pastors and other religious leaders in the city they have tra- trained law enforcement officers. Reverend Bernard, the largest church in this city, he, he wrote a joint op-ed with me of how he has trained law enforcement officers who carry their weapons and they're inside the church to protect the parishioners. So as mayor, would you carry a firearm on you even with a security detail? Uh, uh, yes, I will, number one. And, and number two, I won't have a security detail. If the city is safe, the mayor shouldn't have a security detail with him. He should be walking the street by himself. Number three, the hypocrisy of those who are citywide officials who said that you shouldn't have guns in church. Those guys that walk in with them, they got guns. So there's a level of hypocrisy for a, a, a citywide official say no one should have a gun in the church. But they don't tell their people, hey, hang outside while I go inside. So if we could protect them in the church with a gun, then we could protect Miss Mary with her Bible with a gun. Do you have on a gun right now? <laughs> no, no, I do not. Like, this no, is a legit I question. I really, okay. I really carry. Okay. So there was a shooting in Brooklyn recently involving a law enforcement official off-duty, authorized to carry. Mm-hmm. This was a Secret Service agent in my corner of Brooklyn, mm-hmm. by the, where the stables are, which you were very yes. involved with. Um, Love that area. He, uh, he shot a dog mm-hmm. that was uh, apparently off its leash. Um, is it sensible that we don't know the name of this law enforcement official? In fact, we don't even know that it's a Secret Service agent. The Secret Service just says it's an employee. The NYPD, speaking for attribution at least, just says talk to the Secret Service. Is that is that right and appropriate? Is there some concern that if you just have enough people carrying guns, that yeah, they can provide safety, but they, they can also really screw things up, as appears to have been the case here. And again, it's law enforcement, and so the usual burdens are a little different, and we don't even know this person's name several weeks later. It's not because people haven't been asked. It's, and I think that's inappropriate. I think transparency is crucial. You know, uh, uh, law enforcement officers are given two rights that are the most powerful rights you can give an American. The right to take away freedom and the right to take away a life. They should be scrutinized at a level that no other professional is scrutinized as. And if someone uses his or her gun, their their name should be reported and that information should be given out. And that's why I joined with colleagues in the uh, state lawmakers that stated it should be information on who the officers are that carry a, a firearm. This should not be private. You get you're given that right to carry, and people should know who you are. So are the rules about officer transparency and disclosure going to change, both as a question of lobbying Albany and as a question of how you'd instruct your NYPD commissioner should you be mayor? Without a doubt. uh, I'm clear that um, the instructions of the New York City Police Department is directly tied to what the mayor of the city of New York is capable of doing. And if you understand the intricacies of that agency and how historically that agency has believed that it is separate from the people that they serve and protect, that whole dynamic must change. We must use policing differently in this city. The agency is is too 
a powerful, it's one of the few 24-hour, seven-day-a-week institutions, and we're not using it effectively in the city. It could be used more proactively instead of using it as a reactionary tool in some area. We have done a great job in public safety, but how we police in some communities is different how we police it others. We need to be more uniform in providing the service of protection in, the, in, our, in our city, and we don't do a good job in doing that. One more policing question, and then we've got a couple other quick topics to yep. uh, touch on as we get close to the end, and thank you for your time. Thank you. Dermot Shea. The, we are uh, too technically. We are his constituents, so we can be here <laughs> all day if we really want to. We're both Brooklynites. We pay your salary, sir. <laughs> Dermot Shea, the uh, the police commissioner here, whose brother is the uh, the equivalent of the police commissioner in Jersey City, which is which is wild and something I'd love to talk with him about, with mm-hmm. both of them about. But uh, he says that bail reform is why robberies are way up so far, and it's very early this year. Murders down fifty percent in these super early numbers, and he says, "Look, you know, it's not like we've forgotten how to police." Um, it's the people who, who, in his view, should be uh, locked up and dealt with within that system aren't and that they're going out and doing things. Obviously, the Post has been uh, promoting a series of uh, sort of poster boys for reforming bail reform as they see it. I'm just interested in how you would instruct a commissioner to both deal with public safety and that set of issues and to speak to the public about them should you become mayor. Great question. I'm an advocate for bail reform. In fact, before it was popular, uh, I was the chair of crime and correction. I visited many of our correctional facilities upstate. I would walk through the locations. Some of the inmates would yell out and say, hey, there's Eric Adams, the 100 blacks and law enforcement guy. Uh, So I believe in bail reform. But public safety is a prerequisite to prosperity. We have to be safe. And I have a different view of the city than many people. I don't want Jordan growing up, my son, growing up in the city that I grew up in, where violence was real, 2,000 homicides a year, 98,000 robberies, and about 96,000 of felonious assaults. Uh, crime was real. When I do an analysis of the bail reform, all my misdemeanors should, shouldn't be any bail at all. There's no reason for that. When you look at your, the felonies, and I share this with the advocates. There's certain felonies on there that are problematic. Uh, the felony of burglary. You know, I don't want someone going into a person's home. You hear someone yelling from that your child's room, a person is running out, carrying something, and that person may have committed that burglary the day before, and the judge cannot do an analysis and say, hey, is this guy a serial, serial burglar? Is he going to be a threat to the community that he's returning to, which predominantly high-crime areas are economically challenging in black and brown communities? And so we can't just put people back in those communities and ignore the fact that they may be a danger to the community. I believe we need to figure out how do we allow the judge to do a real analysis to say, is this person an imminent threat to a community? I think those who are dealing with mental health issues, we have to better use the mental health court. They need to have facilities that they can go to if they are an imminent threat to themselves and an imminent threat to others. You look at the also the crime of robbery, too. Robbery, too, is a serious crime. Someone forcefully removing property from an innocent person. If this person has a history and they're going to continue to do those robberies, we can't just say we're just going to turn you back into the street. Look at so mass- does that come into the, in the form of you appointing more judges as, you know, let's just say, your mayor? Does mm-hmm. that come in the form of you appointing more judges, you appointing more police? Like, how would you solve 
this issue? We have to we have to better use the courts and we have to stop um, attacking judges when they make these decisions, which are really you have to make a quick decision of hundreds of cases. So we immediately a, a judge can rule right a uh, 100 times. They could do one case that turns out that they made a judgmental error, not an intentional error. And then all of a sudden, that judge is on the front page of the newspaper. All of a sudden, we demonize him or her, which is the wrong way to view the actions of being a judge, a standing judge. And then we got to really use the mental health court. A lot of these uh, cases are dealing with people who are dealing with mental health issues. And if we're not making sure they're receiving wraparound services, if we're not making sure you have someone that's bipolar and extremely dangerous, if they're on their medication, they can actually perform a normal life. So we're not giving the real services that are needed when we talk about law enforcement. And I was talking to a young man, a captain in St. Fort um, in Brooklyn. We have a young person who gets arrested with a gun, 13-year-olds. We debrief that young person by asking him, does he know about any other criminal action? How about debriefing him to find out what's happening in his life? Are you homeless? Do you have family at home? Is your family uh, living from shelter to shelter? That should be the debriefing. And then the police department should take that information and connect to the services that won't have this young person being a continual cycle in our system. Now, does that come in the form of something a la Shirlane McRae's initiative with mental health? Is yours a more robust police, judicial, commissioner, neighborhood policing? You know, I, I just yeah, want no, you I like, to, that. I like, like that. That's a good question. Sketch I, it out for me. Like, what building, does that look like yes. for as you as a mayor with limited resources in some ways. Yeah, that billion dollars to me could have been better utilized. We are, our city, and I say this often, our city is dysfunctional. One agency creates a crisis. The other agency responds to the crisis. Archbishop Desmond Tutu said it best. We spend a lifetime pulling people out of the river. How about going upstream and find out why they're falling in the first place? So everyone is in a silo. Instead of the connection, it's not how much money we spend. Is what are we doing with the money we have? So my police, my law enforcement, uh, my mental health institutions, my organizations, my nonprofits, we need to all be connected and operating on the same mission. And we're not. I'm blown away as I look at city government of the, the lack of connectivity. Just looking at the Department of Education. Department of Education feeds our health care crisis. 70% of 12-year-olds have early signs of heart disease because of the food we're feeding them in school. It's bad food. I got the city to move away from processed meat, serving it to our children. Um, when you look at the law enforcement problem, 80% of the men and women at Rikers Island don't have a high school diploma, equivalency diploma. A third of the less than 18-year-olds read below a fifth grade reading, reading level. Uh, 55% have a mental uh, a learning disability. 40% are dyslexic. So if we stop being a crisis-driven city and start to deal with why people are falling into the river in the beginning, we won't have to spend the money we're spending downstream. And that is the mindset that I bring uh, to politics. That's different from everyone else because I saw the evolution of a dysfunctional agency and made it functional. There's a lot we could get into there, including your push to have universal gifted testing. Um, I think we could probably spend an episode on your time working within the institution of the NYPD and mm -hmm. how that played out. But in our very last minutes here, yes. I, I want to ask you a couple of uh, quick questions that are things you could definitely unpack at more length, yes. but in brief. Mm -hmm. You are – it's 2020. We're many, many months away from November of 2021, but you are 
leading the fundraising race mm -hmm. of the prospective mayoral candidates by a lot. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, that's become a source of criticism, both because of money that's come in from developers, you know, including the Wentuses, and because of how your nonprofit has has functioned. In brief, I'd just like to know what you your response to those criticisms and how people should understand this as they're just starting to pay attention yes, to the and race. It's, and and it's, it's, it's laughable. 88% of the people who donated to my campaign are not in the real estate space. People have donated from $5 to um, the maximum amount they, they could contribute, 4,000 donors. If you do an analysis of the people who contribute to my campaign, I probably have more people from Korea, more people from China, more people from the Caribbean, African-American, Uzbekistan, Russian-speaking. I'm one of the most diverse candidates. And now that Eric has learned the rules, play it legally, those who have benefited from it are all of a sudden saying, we want to change the rules of the game. I feel like Will Chamberlain, you know, <laughs> just because I'm scoring 100 points, I'm learning your rules. These are your rules. They grew up in this industry. So all I'm doing is learning the legal rules that are played. Our real estate industry spends on, pays almost $32 billion a year in taxes. It's the, it's the, it pays more than half of the taxes in the city of New York. We need to make, hold them accountable. But I'm not going to go to them and say, listen, I don't like you, so don't pay your taxes. Not, we need to stop this silliness of, you know, where you, you, you get money from real estate. We have 35,000. Think about this for a moment. We have 35,000 nonprofits in the city. 600,000 employees, $33.6 billion in payroll that's plenty to the city because of those nonprofits. Who's donating those nonprofits? People who have been successful. They, they come back and they say, listen, I want to be a part of the Robin Hood Foundation. I want to contribute to these various uh, PALs and um, Boys Club. So we don't need to divide the city. We need to tell people, darn it, you need to do your part. And you're not going to be disruptive. You're not going to treat people unfairly. We're going to hold you accountable. And no one, in some cases, we're going to call you to pay more. So last yeah. question about the, uh, the game here. Bill de Blasio has played the game very well. and legally, as it's been determined. Well, that uh, remains to be seen, but go ahead. <laughs> after prosecutors have, have looked at things and scolded him and, and, and so on, he also figured out how the new game worked before anyone else, which was garbled because Mike Bloomberg wasn't playing the game. Yes. And so Bill figured out how to use outside money successfully, or people figured out how to help him with that uh, when he became mayor in a way no one else figured. And that ended up really kneecapping Christine Quinn. This is history. Right. Mm -hmm. You know. The thing I'm reading now, and I don't know anything, uh, mm -hmm. you might, mm -hmm. is that there, there's a set of deals in which Bill de Blasio leaves, um, Shirlane McRae, his wife, becomes the <laughs> next borough president of Brooklyn with your endorsement, and Bill de Blasio mayor endorses you uh, for mayor as he goes. Right. Um, fill me in on that. Uh, yeah, just yeah, just yeah, between yeah. us. No, I'm, I'm so glad you're asking these just questions. Friends. You know that? I'm so glad. <laughs> First of all, I'm the only person in New York City outside of Senator Gillibrand who's saying, let's take money out of politics altogether. I don't want to call up anyone. I don't want to make these 30,000 calls mm -hmm. <laughs> to raise money. There should be no money in politics. If you take money out of politics altogether, no more fundraising, no more calling, you would allow any and everyone to be able to stand up and run and have their voices heard. It's unfair that people, if you can't raise $3 million, that you can't be heard. It's not right. But no one wants to talk about that. Second, I never met <coughs> with the mayor. I never met with his wife. We've never had a conversation about her. 
how someone writes a story after they spoke with me, and I said, it never happened. It's one thing if I would have said that, hey, we had a conversation. I don't want to go into the details. Got it. I never spoke with the mayor about his wife running for borough president. Never. We never had the conversation. But this is all of the part of the Eric Adams thing that's going on. You know, there's people in the corner of this city that say, you know what, we we know that bald-headed guy, and <laughs> we're going to do everything we can. We're going to write stories. We're going to even say his comments on uh, Martin Luther King Day were racist. Like, there are no black people in Ohio. Listen, I'm not a racist. I know I'm not a racist, but I'm not going to fly around the city trying to tell people I'm not a racist. People are going to look at my life story. My life story has been a story of fighting for people who have been treated unfairly. That is my legacy. And it's not about being elected mayor because I'm a big believer. What the universe intends for you, you will get. If it's not intended for you, you're not going to get it. I'm going to live my life. Losing the mayorship is not important. Losing who I am is. I've always been successful by being Eric Adams. I'm going to continue to be successful by being Eric Adams. Eric well, Adams. To Eric Adams. <laughs> so this is clearly, with ranked choice voting, I'm fascinated to see how 2021 shakes out. Okay, so I have some quick questions. Yeah. They're not yes or no's, okay. but they're just kind of yes. one-word one answers, if you will. Yes. Okay, when was the last time you took the subway? All the time. I'm MetroCard. I'm a MetroCard guy. My staff laughs all the time. People stop all the time. I am a, I love so the subway system. So when was last time? Um, Yesterday, this, last this week, morning. last month? This okay. morning. Um, what's the last bus you took? Uh, the B36. Okay. Uh, when was the last time you went to a museum, not when you were on the job? Haven't been to the museum in a while. I would say a year. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm a board member of the Tenement Museum, so you should come on down and see our new that. exhibit. We um, should duplicate duplicate the whole tenement concept. It's a good concept. It's a great concept. Uh, what's the last beach you went to? Uh, Coney Island, you know. Okay. I do I do the um, polar bear plunge. Oh, you, you know don't that? do the hot dog eating kind of uh, thing? Like <laughs> I'm, I'm a vegan. Let's say give me I a know. vegan dog. <laughs> I know. Um, what's the best part of New York City? It's people. Okay. It's people. New and old. Hmm? New and old. New and old. It's people. <laughs> it's people. It's a great fun, man. Brooklyn, you could go into a Mexican restaurant, um, have a Russian cook make you a German meal that he learned from his Polish girlfriend. It's the people. And what's the worst part of New York City? Our inability to just greet each other in a warm way. Just a hello goes a long way. All right. Well, thank you, President <laughs> Adams, a.k.a. Eric, and uh, thank you for spending some time with your constituents thank you, this thank morning. Thank you. Great, Appreciate great, it. Great, great topics. Thank you. All right. <laughs> FAQ. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media, and we're supported by listeners like you. We're headquartered at the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at NYU. But this week, we recorded at Don't Bury the Lead on 321 Canal Street. We'd like to thank our executive producer, Alex Brooklyn, and our episode producer this week, Adam Kamara. A very, very special thank you goes out to the Brooklyn Borough President, Eric Adams. Thank you for tuning in. Go Brooklyn.